The Me Too movement has led many people to share their experiences with sexual harassment and sexual assault. It has sparked conversations and controversy and maybe even cultural change. This is Unsettled, Mapping Me Too, a podcast from Iowa Public Radio dedicated to conversations about Me Too and its impact. I'm Charity Nebbe. On this episode, we're going to talk about consent. We'll find out what a healthy conversation about sex sounds like, explore what it means to get consent, how to do it, and how these conversations can actually make sex more enjoyable, not less. Later in the episode, we'll also explore how bystander intervention and education can empower men and women to prevent sexual violence and misunderstanding. My first guest today is Allison Oliver. She's been teaching human sexuality classes at the University of Iowa since 2004. Allison, thank you for being here. Happy to be here. Thanks. And I want to start with the word consent because Mm -hmm. it's something that we talk about a lot in our culture, but I'm not sure we all have an equal understanding of what that means. So how do you define consent? Yeah, I think that is an excellent first question because I think that's a place where we don't have a shared understanding, but that's that's part of my definition. So um, for me, uh, consent is a shared understanding. Um, It's a shared, mutually communicated understanding of what a defined time, space, and exchange is going to be like. And that can be in any domain. It doesn't have to be sexual. So... Um, it's dynamic, and so I think that's an important part of, of a definition of consent is that it um, it's a living, breathing thing. And so in the sense that it's um, – I think a lot of us start with b- baby steps of treating consent as a transaction, which it is in its, in its minute form. Um, and it's also um, dynamic in, in terms of, of having a shared understanding not only of what people are agreeing to or not, what people's boundaries um, and agency is within it, but also – what they're agreeing to with each other in the dynamicism of it, how they're going to treat each other in it. So it's kind of a, a shared understanding of what people's um, agency, invitation, and boundaries are going to look like in a shared space. A lot of conversations about consent or education about consent mm-hmm. um, boils it down to just a few words. For example, no means no, yes. which is a true thing. But mm-hmm. when we simplify consent like that, what kind of a disservice are we doing? Um, well, let me share a couple of things. I think that it serves as a disservice. And I was somebody who worked um, really actively in um, anti-sexual violence movements since the mid-90s. Um, and so it's certainly a passion place for mine. And I think we have a shared agenda that we that we want to reduce, eliminate um, all non-consensual forms of sexual engagement. And I think that where we started was... A really low bar, like at least at least give us like, at least give us this. The no really does mean no, um, and um, I've also seen that spread out into what has become more of a liability protection approach to um, sexual invitation or um, or engagement, where it's it's like I, I remember having conversations as a sexuality educator where people are basically, especially boys and young men. Um, we're saying, so if I do this, then is it a problem? Or if I do this, is it a problem? And it was like, what is the bare minimum we can get away with without it being crossing a particular line? And it had, it was very internally focused. And so it was, it was basically these, these siloed experiences, um, of people who were not communicating with each other, um, outside of boundaries. So, um, 
so I grew up um, very active in the, the no means no place and then found that I was really, really good at talking about unhealthy sexuality and not so good about teaching about healthy sexuality. So I learned all different kinds of ways to say and communicate uh, no and try to teach people how to hear it and then didn't have anything for how people communicate yes or maybe or I'm interested, but I don't know. And so I think there was a, a, a bulletin board in a, a college dorm that I went past this semester that had um, all the things that mean no. So there are all these little sticky notes. Like if they say, I don't know, it means no. If it says, I'm not sure, it means no. If, they, if it's silence, that means no. And I was like, this is good from a liability protection perspective. And I think that it doesn't teach anybody how to actually communicate and, and share what they're interested in, what they like, what they don't like, um, and and be able to have a conversation. So ultimately, when I talk about consent, I say consent is a conversation. Um, it's not a yes or no exchange. You don't get much information from that. Um, you get some places to start, but um, a common thing like, do you want to have sex with me, doesn't tell us anything. There are lots of different ways to be sexual with people that there's lots of different context involved with that, and it doesn't give any space for that. So when I train in interpersonal skills with my with my social work students, they say, try not to ask close-ended questions because you just don't get as much information. And, and so I feel like the, the consent piece um, loses a lot when we're only focusing on the no. It also presents it um, in a way as, as a consistent potential threat as well as an opportunity for a, a mutually satisfying shared experience. And so I want to be, I want to leave room. I mean, no is important and it's not the only thing that's available. The, I guess the message no means no also makes it sound like this is a one-time conversation. Right. What's mm. what's wrong with that mm -hmm. idea? Um, it's not dynamic, for starters. And so when we have conversations, and this was something that's present in looking at a lot of different kinds of narratives um, related to uh, sexual assault, is that there are oftentimes a lot of things that are mutually agreed upon or, or mutually understood or assumed to be okay, and then there are some things that are not. And so having even having a one-time exchange, one, it, it means that people are relying, whoever's initiating is relying on this um, no news is good news approach to, to being sexual without any um, interest or inclination about, or curiosity really, about what, what am I doing that, to help co-create this experience and the lack of dynamicism. And so People being able to 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 adjust um, in tandem, like kind of like dancing, <laughs> like um, being able to to adjust and say, "Oh, let's try it this way. Let's do it this way." If you just have that transactional, um, like one time, like I'm, I'm covered because it's liability protection. Like I've got it's a contractual agreement that happens one time. It doesn't allow for any space for um, for to create a, a, a variable, flexible, satisfying experience. Well, let's talk, let's flip the conversation and uh, talk about what you talk about. Mm -hmm. Because if you if you felt limited by the idea of talking about no, mm -hmm. let's talk about yes and the, mm -hmm. the various conversations about that. I mean, you've done a number of workshops, including the one that you'll be doing this weekend. Yes. And looking at even the, the title, Erotic Vulnerability, Joy and Consent, mm -hmm. those are words we don't normally connect with consent. A lot of people say the idea of consent in the heat of a moment takes all of the heat mm -hmm. out of that moment. So connect the dots for me. What yeah. is the message you're trying to share? I'm trying to share that um, 
when you get out of the liability protection mode of, of consent as a transaction and actually invite it in a more playful or curious, um, interested kind of way, um, in the way we do for lots of other kinds of activities, um, like dancing, sharing food together, um, where there's different kinds of invitations, suggestions, initiations, that um, that vulnerability piece is being open to exchange, open to negotiation. And negotiation, not in a contractual kind of way, but what are we interested in? What do we like? What um, what what aren't we in the mood for today, but what are we in the mood for? And um, a lot of this stemmed, I, I share a, a specific encounter that I had with a new sexual partner that I had once who asked me, so what do you like? And I froze. Like, I didn't have a response. I was in my early 20s, and I didn't have a response. And I was like, and, and this was work that I had been doing. And I was like, what is that? And I was like, I don't have any skills or tools or familiarity. I don't have any neural pathways that are that are fostered to try to facilitate this conversation. And I think that's the case for a lot of, of people. Um, and so what we try to, what Natalie Benway, my co-facilitator and I were trying to put together from her perspective as a therapist and mine as a sexuality educator was how do we create some tools that can allow people to move into a present versus performative state um, in a sexual experience, a sexual erotic experience, and then what t- communication tools are available to flip a script, so to speak, and be able to um, invite um, curiosity about what I'm interested in, what other people are interested in, um, and to, to co-create um, a delicious experience. And that takes vulnerability. This also sounds like um, uh, an investment in equality between the the people who are participating in a sexual act. Mm-hmm. When we talk about consent, it also it often revolves around one person performing an act on another yes. person. So, is that an important part of this? Um, it is. I I prefer to talk about it as shared agency. Um, because again, it's it's dynamic, and there are different. There's spontaneous and responsive sexual desire. They 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 pair differently um, in different circumstances. Context makes a difference. So, I think that there's in a place where there's shared agency, um, it doesn't have to be equal. Uh, it doesn't have to be like like I'm going to initiate this part, and then you're going to initiate this part, and we'll just trade off. Um, and but that um, in the same way as, as people bring. Their their interests, their skill sets, their um, their attention, and 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 it can be a sense that that people are interacting together, and in a way that is um, balanced, um, and, and and it feels like co-participation, um, even if one is kind of guiding another one along, that there's still a sense of shared agency, um, and and autonomy within that, um, without a sense of entitlement or power over somebody else which is a lot of times how that transactional sensibility goes. And I want to bring somebody else into our conversation now. I've been talking with Allison Oliver. She teaches human sexuality classes at the University of Iowa. Also with us now is Emily Wenzel, an associate professor of anthropology at the University of Iowa. Hello, Emily. Hello. So Allison and I have been talking about these conversations about consent. And of course, to have a conversation about consent and about sex, that means we have to be able to talk about sex. As a culture, Emily, are we good at talking about sex? Easy question. No. (laughs) 
not. We are not. But I'll tell you why. Uh, so I'm a cultural anthropologist, which means I study cultural change and, and how being part of a broader culture influences an individual's life experience. And I would say we have two sort of cultural ideas or assumptions in the U.S. that make it very hard to have the kind of uh, vulnerable, dynamic conversations about not only sexuality, but pleasure and boundaries and how they can change over time that, that you were both discussing earlier. And the first of those issues is that we really value silence around sexuality. So if you think of any scene in any movie where two people are going to have a romantic encounter, there's this moment where the talking stops and the music comes up and they come in for a kiss or a something sexual. But there's this really powerful cultural idea demonstrated there that when it's really sexy and really right, you don't have to say anything. You have That's magical, the idealization. Yes, this magical telepathy where you know the other person wants you and you know what they want and you know that in their head they're not thinking, oh, 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 so awkward, but right? Um, and that's wildly unrealistic. Like that's that's a media fantasy that does real harm in our daily lives because that gives the idea that for a moment to be really sexy, it has to be silent. And for someone to be good at sex, they have to magically know what another person wants or what their boundaries are, which is impossible without talking. So I think we can really think critically about um, that image, where it came from, the fact that it sort of, I think, is rooted in a time where people, especially women and other more vulnerable people, had a lot less power to say what they wanted sexually. And do we want to continue making that our ideal or is talking about things in order to get pleasure and prevent assault may be a better ideal. The second cultural idea, I would say, really makes it hard to think about consent in this more dynamic, communicative way is a really individualistic focus around sex, particularly male sexuality. Uh, so a lot of my research is on medical interventions for what's called male sexual dysfunction, but really could be considered you know, men's sexual function change over the course of their lives. And when you look at any commercial for, say, an erectile dysfunction drug, it's always about the man as a hydraulic system, right? Often there is a sexual partner in the background and this sort of general feeling of anxiety about a real man has to somehow please the partner. But the message is the man has to have penetrative sex, which they assume is what the partner must always want, which is not faithful to reality, but that talking about it or the relational experience with sexual partners isn't part of the issue, that this is an individual biological issue. And biology is certainly part of sexual function and response, but by casting it as only this individual thing, we really stop ourselves from having a more dynamic and nuanced and pleasurable understanding of sexuality. I, I want to go back to the idealization of sex as something that is silent. When the passion starts, the talking stops. And and take yet another step back to, to something that we have seen idealized for a long time in our culture, which is this idea that uh, a forced kiss, for example, is the moment of awakening where usually the a male person would force a kiss on a female person and they would then suddenly realize, oh, I do actually want you. I mean, so it's not even necessarily just this idealization of silence, but the idealization of forcing oneself on someone else. Absolutely. That's a key point. And there's a crucial difference between the kind of responsive sexuality that can come out of a consensual and ongoing encounter and this imaginary idea of that forcing someone into a sexual situation will then make them somehow be into it. Um, 
definitely there is a sexiness to power dynamics that many people play with in their own sexual experiences. And that's that's fine. There are kink communities based around that entire thing. Those communities are notable because of the emphasis they put on consent, right? Before, say, if you're in the BDSM community, you start to have any kind of sexual interaction, even one that's not going to look traditionally sexual, um, that might not have anything like penetration, for example. You're going to have a conversation in depth about what each person wants, what's okay, what's not okay, and how to know if the person's ideas about that change in the moment. So that's not to say that you can't find sexiness in power differentials. It is to say that you can't assume ever that it's going to lead to a pleasurable or consensual time for both people to follow this very problematic sort of cultural idea that, well, powerful men are sexy. So if a powerful man starts to have sex on a woman or on another person, they will somehow become into it. Do you feel like we're getting better at talking about sex? I mean, uh, we, we see these cultural mores change over time. You know, that's an interesting question. So there's a there's a famous uh, social theorist and philosopher called Michel Foucault that we talk about a lot in academia who who says that in Western culture, we talk constantly about how we never talk about sex, that we're obsessed with sex and we're especially obsessed with saying it's totally taboo and we can never discuss it. So we've been discussing it and we've been discussing it as something we don't discuss for a long time. In some ways, our conversations remain quite similar. But I do think because of dedicated activism, they are incrementally changing. We have had, as Allison was saying, sort of discussions around consent of one kind or another for a long time. And that has led to things like legal changes. For example, marital rape is now a category. It used to be that marriage was a contract that just gave a man sexual entitlement. So we have had real changes around that. But we also still do have these difficult cultural ideas and also sort of problematic vestiges of power imbalances that that linger in the way we think about sex. We are talking about consent this hour with me, cultural anthropologist Emily Wenzel and Allison Oliver, who teaches human sexuality courses at the University of Iowa. You are welcome to join the conversation with your questions and observations. And Steve is on the line in Des Moines. Hi, Steve. Hey, good morning. Thank you so much for calling. What's your question? Very quick question. Um, I had uh, two daughters, and my advice to them was always to uh, uh, have consent worked out before you put yourself in a position where can, where there's an opportunity for, for a misunderstanding about consent. And unless you do that, it's a he said, she said situation. Um, you've allowed yourself to be in a position where your consent wasn't known. And I went so far as to say there should be pretty clear evidence that you were being falsely imprisoned or kidnapped or whatever before, uh, before an assault could actually happen. So consent needed to be addressed before you ever put yourself in a position where um, you had to make the decision on the fly. Okay. And so uh, you're asking uh, about how we have conversations with women uh, about right, this? Right. Why, why, not, why not push for people to have these consent questions before they're in positions, or the, before they put themselves in a position where it could be a he said, she said, or he felt, she felt misunderstanding. And, and that, was my, that was my advice um, to uh, my daughters and um, all right. I'm curious about 
I'm curious about how uh, the speakers feel about yeah. gaining this consent before you ever have to have these kind of consent decisions in a spur-of-the-moment situation. Okay, Steve, thank you so much for the call. And um, Emily wants to, to tackle this question first. Yeah, so I think this comment really reflects two issues that are, are related here. One is that we live in a world where sexual assault is frequent, uh, where women are often punished and blamed for assault, even as they are targets of it, uh, and when women are often not believed. Right. So I think the comment about having this sort of um, clear record of saying, no, that's that's the sort of legal response that Allison was talking about earlier to consent. Right. That reflects this very important reality of that people are assaulted quite frequently. Right. And it's very hard to get justice in the court system for that. So and, and I, Steve's efforts to keep his daughters safe. Yes. I would also say, though, that um, when we talk about consent in this broader way, um, we want to move beyond these sort of legalistic frameworks and, and also think about two key things. One is the the relevance of men in this situation, right? That, that it's not just up to women to somehow protect themselves through trying to get men into conversations about consent, but for all people to want to engage in sexuality that is not violent or exploitative. And so talking about consent is one piece of that, or like well-meaning people uh, can avoid misunderstandings by engaging in conversations about consent. But I think it's also very important to say that uh, people need to not commit non-consensual acts of rape and sexual violence on each other. Allison, what, what do you want to add to that? Because, I mean, again, Steve, as a dad, mm -hmm. was trying to keep his daughters safe and, sure. and help prepare them for the world. Um, I'm sure that teaching college students, you hear a lot of this mm -hmm. about conversations students have had with their parents, but also how the conversations are different with men mm -hmm. and women. Yeah. And, um, and so I, I think that... Um, yeah, I'll echo what what Emily said about um, that. I think that based on wherever people's kind of social location is, um, so not only across gender, but other like I'm thinking about um, like trans women of color who are um, and, and trans people, non-binary um, folks who in general um, have um, some of the highest uh, prevalence rates of, of sexual violence in our society and that there's. Um, and so, yes, I agree. And part of my work is actually in 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 establishing a different set of expectations um, for people who are interested in each other and um, interested in being sexual and can negotiate um, with that. And that that is a shared experience and that it isn't, again, from that contractual sense of like, yes, I've agreed to do this. And, and if if not, then that means that something really egregious has to happen for there to be any wiggle room about whether or not this was not only unsatisfying, but non-consensual. Um, but that there's an expectation. I, I, I consider two things that I talk to my students about. One is agency, a shared agency. Like, um, what is everyone's involvement with this? And the vulnerability piece is that your agenda might get reconfigured. Like what you want or your idea about the step-by-steps that you want to have accomplished or what your goal is in this might change based on a shared agenda. And that's where the negotiation skills come into play. And that's where that sense of entitlement is that where someone else's agenda is superseding somebody else's. And and so there's, there's that piece. And the other piece that I talk about at a really basic level with my students is empathy. Um, approaching all of our potential partners with a sense of empathy, not just what I want, um, or what I'm, or what I don't want, but also where is everyone else coming from, and having, um, 
having an understanding of that, that was, it was something that um, I think that it's important um, for, for parents, for example, to um, be able to, to foster um, conversations and, and education that, that invite them to um, experience and explore what things they find pleasurable, to be able to um, talk about that. Um, to talk about that openly, to negotiate openly um, in ways that that create those expectations of of a shared agenda, so to speak, a, a shared experience. So empowering both men and women to be all genders, yeah, absolutely. honest and assertive, and know that they can say no if they need to, or to say mm, maybe not that, or how about this, or mm, that's not really working for me, or like again, everything that's beyond that no, um, where it's not. Um, that the he said she he said she said dynamic assumes that it's they're on two different sides, um, and and so what it, what is it like to actually try to reframe that as uh, as people who are in a in a shared experience? Yeah, I I think that's a very useful way to think about this issue. And just thinking from a cultural perspective, you know, thinking back to the America of my not very distant youth. Um, things maybe are changing a little bit, but we had this model of that sex is very, very important for showing that you're an adult, that you're like a good person, and especially for men, that you're a real man. If you think of any John Hughes movie, right, it's all about, oh, losing your virginity. You can't be it's so stigmatized to be a virgin. But there's zero discussion of pleasure. And in fact, the sex that was sort of portrayed was usually very not pleasurable at all. Um, so I think if we sort of try to get away from these values of silence and individuality that leads to these individualistic agendas that can be quite harmful and move to this more uh, interactive idea of creating a shared agenda and seeking pleasure, we can really move from a model of you have to have sex to prove your worth to you have to treat others well and develop mutual pleasure sexually and otherwise to prove your worth. We're talking about consent this hour. Emily Wenzel is here with me, along with Allison Oliver, and I want to bring Bobby Dennis into the conversation now. He is Male Engagement and Sexual Assault Prevention Advocate at ACCESS. That stands for Assault Care Center Extending Shelter and Support in Boone County. Hello, Bobby. Hi, how are you doing? Great. Thank you so much for being here today. And I would like to talk about how, in our culture, how men talk about relationships with each other. And, uh, you know, again, this is partially based on what we see in movies and on television. But the the pressure to talk about romantic relationships in a way where a, a, a man or a boy is always the, the pursuer. How do you think about how men are, are really conditioned to talk and think about romance? I mean, I, I think that you've you've kind of identified it in in that that men and, and boys are um, in the dominant you know in the dominant media culture. I think it's gotten better for sure. We, we we're talking about a lot of um, a lot of things that we really saw in the '90s, but they're shaping where we are right now. You know, as I was a '90s kid, and a lot of a lot of those things are shaping my identity, shaping the identity of my peers. Um, but yeah, there was a lot of this idea of the, the men is the pursuer, the man, the man is the aggressor. Men need to be, um, or men need to want sex in the, in the first place. That's, it's, uh, an own assumption that goes on, but men are supposed to be sexually aggressive, the sexual initiators. Um, and that was kind of the dialogue that was shaped, right? To be a man was to 
want to have sex, more specifically, want to have sex with women. Um, was kind of the dialogue that was shaped for us in the media, in our understanding. And I think that it has, um, it, it kind of ends up being a problem for a lot of people where that's not their, necessarily their reality. Um, I was talking to a fraternity, um, I, we do a lot of fraternity education, and um, one of the, the areas of conversation was around sexual reputation and bragging about sexual reputation. And I had given the tools to these fraternity leaders to lead a conversation in their house. And they started engaging in a conversation about sexual reputation. And over the course of this conversation, um, there, were, there were a couple men that identified that there were some overarching assumptions about sexuality in the house that were different than their realities. Right. So one of the, the men, um, he was a gay male and he a gay man and he um, kind of really called out the fact that in their house, sex was really framed as this interaction between a man and a woman. And that made him feel isolated and uncomfortable. And then the other the other man that spoke up was a man that because of his his faith beliefs, because of his own um, personal like desires, didn't desire to have sex before marriage. And he he talked about how that the conversation about men should always want sex, men should be pursuing sex, men should be having sex was equally isolating for him as a man that didn't have those desires in that same way. Well, I, I think that's very interesting and not just with someone who uh, may have religious beliefs that would make them not want to engage in, in premarital sex. But from my perspective, I see a lot of pressure on teenage boys and men to live a constant yes, this pressure to always want to pursue sex. Do you think that, that that's a, a real cultural problem, Bobby? Um, yeah, I, I think it definitely is. And one of the reasons it is a, a big cultural problem is um, I've, and I think that this has a lot to do, I don't necessarily, I'm, I'm not the people working for the university, so <laughs> this is not coming from a research basis. But um, what I've what I've noticed is a lot of times the men that, especially the young men that I perceive are are maybe sometimes the most harmful are the ones that maybe are insecure about their own ability to pursue or their own ability to have sex, right? And kind of out of a overreaction, right? Like I'm not, I'm not fitting in, I'm not good enough, I'm not having sex. Out of an overreaction, they cross boundaries just to feel like they are a man or they are able to fit into this, this box um, that society wants to put them in. Yeah, Allison, I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that because I know working with young men and women in a college setting, um, <laughs> We're talking about consent on both sides, but sometimes do you think men are afraid to say no or I don't feel comfortable or I don't want to do this? Absolutely. Um, and so there's – in one of my classes, I do this kind of formula like what's the cultural formula that we have for how these um, how these uh, encounters occur? And it's like, okay, who is socialized to always want sex and always be at the ready and be available and be initiating and all these things? And it's like, yeah, the guys are. Okay, who's socialized to be the gatekeepers? Like – you're expected to say no unless you have a really, really good reason for saying yes. And and it's usually the women. And and so I was like, so what happens? And I was like, and, and then also where does the, you know, mutually uh, mutually negotiated dynamic consent take place? And it's not there. So that's the minus part of the formula. So it's like, so what do we end up with here? Um, one of the things we end up with is, and I do hear from, from people who are expected to initiate, 
and this can be across gender. It can also be across age, um, like in talking with um, with those in the queer community um, about who feel who feels pressure to initiate, um, and that there there can still be a sense of of imbalance uh, with that, and that one it, it offers the expectation for. Um, men, including those who identify as asexual or aromantic, for example, um, that there's something wrong with them if they're not interested. Um, we have a lot of, of people who um, don't identify their experiences as, um, as sexual assault um, because they are men um, and, and have that like, I guess I wasn't really into it, but I was, I was just there. Um, and so, you know, how they, how they talk about their own non-consensual experiences, um, especially in heterosexual encounters, is different. And and so it it ultimately like means like not satisfying. So some people, a lot of people, talk about pressure, and the pressure to initiate, um, and and to have to be right. The risks that they're willing. We we do this this exchange in in my class where we practice erotic communication, and it's really uncomfortable for a lot of the women in my class because they've never done it before. Um, actually, initiating a conversation is something that they're like that just feels really weird. I would never do this. Um, and they talk about how they typically wait for their partner to initiate um, on average. And and at the same time, it's like a lot of the men talk about like it, it, it's really hard for us to put ourselves out there over and over again and, and get the risk of what's perceived as rejection as opposed to an opportunity for negotiation. And and it's like, you know, how do we reframe this again so that it's it's a shared co-created experience and and where that that pressure and risk taking that vulnerability is something that um, can be. You know, mutually held together with with care, which I think is something that has happened a lot better, like within the kink community that that Emily referenced earlier, um, which is one of my, my frames of reference for uh, the workshop that I'm doing on Saturday. Is is that there actually are some really great models, subcultural models, um, about how this can happen in a way that is exciting, that is um, enticing, that's mutual, that it builds anticipation in the best of ways potentially. And and can be variable, um, and and have people explore with curiosity, in a way that also doesn't have to be enthusiastic, and where that performative aspect of of, of sexual expectations. I want to get to the phones here. We have a number of people who want to get into this conversation. Uh, I want to take Mason in Emmitsburg. Hi, Mason. Hi. Hi. What's your question? Um, well, I just had a question for everybody. Um, I wanted some kind of general advice. Like, so every now and then you see um, cases where a male is falsely accused of a sexual assault. And I just wanted some advice on, like, what can a guy do? Like, what can I do to protect myself from being falsely accused? Like, short of signing a contract between the two parties, what, what is something that you can do to kind of protect yourself that prove that you did go through the steps to get proper consent. Okay, Mason, thank you so much for your question. I think that's a question a lot of people have. Uh, Bobby, I'm going to let you respond to that first. Yeah, um, I think that, that the first thing I want to say is I we've kind of, as men, created this like culture of fear around consent. Like, I, I don't, I think it's been, um, like, honestly, when people say false accusation, how do I protect myself from being falsely accused like to me that is that is really fear-based um it's we're talking about a a reality that is is a small percentage of the of the overarching reality regarding sexual assault um if we're talking about false accusation we're talking about like a, a really minuscule minority of reports are false 
And um, I think that we've framed it in this place to be like almost afraid, right? Like it's it's even restricting on on men's ability to engage in in sex and communicate boundaries and communicate wants and needs the way that they want to if we're in this place of like, oh man, I have to sign a contract or I'm going to be falsely accused. Um, when the reality of consent is it's much more about just understanding boundaries, communicating with each other, being engaged in that activity mutually. Like if you if you want to make sure you have consensual sex, have consensual sex and just be aware of boundaries and be aware of communication um, and not not be just trying to go into that just to get out what you want um, when it comes to that. Allison, do you want to respond to that as well? I'm sure that's something you talk to your students about. Sure. Um, and as, as Bobby said, like this is um, the, the fear amplifies the, the preoccupation um, because it is just it isn't very common um, that it takes place. Um, I do want to offer some nuance to something that Bobby said earlier, which was that nobody accidentally assaults somebody else. And I have, as a, as a, as a survivor advocate, I have sat with survivors um, who have said things like, I don't think he even knew what he was, that he was doing anything wrong. Um, and, and so I, I want to leave some room that based on that, um, the, the kind of uh, dynamic that has been set up that really is, is not empathic. It's, it's, it's very goal-directed. Like, if I achieve these particular steps, and this is a successful encounter, um, without those, um, those verbal and nonverbal communication um, skills that are at play there, that I think you can end up in circumstances where people don't realize exactly what they have done. They don't realize the impact that they have had, that their actions have had. They don't realize they've overstepped boundaries. Um, I think that can exist um, because I've heard it, and I've heard it from survivors themselves, and I believe them. So I think that the um, I think that there is something though that fundamentally is about rewinding. Um, so coming back to, to Emma's question about rewinding and saying like. If this is an encounter that I'm interested in having, what are people interested in? Like starting with with some curiosity, like what what are you interested in? What do you like? What do you don't like? What are your boundaries? Um, what things um, do you want me to keep in mind? Um, and these can be these can be playful. These can be this can happen um, early in conversation, um, and and to be attentive to those things. And I think I feel like if we if we did those things, that um, that we're more attuned with whoever our partners are, that we um, we can be able to be vulnerable um, because we, we know that we can be flexible, dynamic with each other and not be trenched in fear, um, which is going to take us out of the experience, uh, no matter what, we're, if, if we're entrenched in fear in an experience, um, it's going to ultimately make it less pleasurable. So um, if it's fear that we're not active, activating um, of our own agency. So... We really need to like fundamentally change how we're viewing these exchanges and the, these encounters in the first place, um, and be able to approach them from a place of anticipation and, and and mutual pleasure and exchange. So, and we have only a couple of minutes left, and I, I do want to ask you, Bobby, before we run out of time. Uh, I know a lot of your work has to do with bystander education and intervention. I mean, people, when they're in social situations, they are usually not entirely alone in these social situations. Very briefly, we could spend a whole hour talking about this, but very briefly, what do you think we need to understand? Uh, 
men and women, if we're in a social situation, where what are some of the red flags that we might be able to identify and things we can do? Yeah, and and unfortunately, I think that that's the the part that everybody's ready for to some degree, right? Um, acknowledging barriers happen, right? If if I so if I'm at a party and I see a drunk girl being you know carried up the stairs, I think everybody's more or less going to look at that situation and say, oh yeah, I would I would intervene, right? They would have that desire to intervene. Um, being aware of barriers is really good. Just being aware of like, okay, what what could stop me from intervening in this place, right? Is am I intoxicated to a level where I'm concerned if I'm interpret interpreting this right? Um, am I afraid that the other guy is bigger than me, or you know, I'm afraid of of embarrassing this person? Is this person my friend, right? Being aware of those barriers and then um, kind of changing your response based on that. Right. So just just being aware of like what is actually stopping me from intervening and then therefore what are some things I can do to intervene um, based around that. But I think that the when we're talking about bystander intervention, we actually need to start encouraging the conversation before. Um, so challenging our our peers, our friends, our, our loved ones, harmful viewpoints on sex and sexuality um, before those instances um, is a really effective tool when it comes to bystander intervention. And with only a few minutes or a few seconds left, really, Allison, I, I'm going to let you have the last word. When do we need to ha- start having these conversations with people about consent, with children about consent? Um, I think that um, before they can talk is a really good time to start. Um, uh, young people are very tactile little creatures. Um, and they learn about boundaries and pleasure and negotiation actually from birth on. And so we can we can model that with our um, with our children and other young people about um, their agency, about their experience of pleasure, um, about being able to say yes and ask for what they want. And that doesn't mean sexual pleasure. No, that just means pleasure. It's ple- yeah. And, and that, it, that can then extend as they grow developmentally into their sexual self. I've been talking with Allison Oliver. She's been teaching human sexuality classes at the University of Iowa since 2004. I've also been talking with Emily Wenzel, an associate professor of anthropology at the University of Iowa, and Bobby Dennis, a male engagement and sexual assault prevention advocate at ACCESS. That stands for Assault Care Center Extending Shelter and Support in Boone County. You've been listening to Unsettled, Mapping Me Too, produced by Caitlin Harrop, Emily Woodbury, and Lindsay Moon. I'm Charity Nebbe. This is a production of Iowa Public Radio.